0: To them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all of the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So what do you guys want for Christmas? Uh, Generally speaking, the gifts that you receive every year can be categorized into needs and wants. And the gifts that we want are the exciting ones. There's the ones that we're anticipating and we're suffering sleepless nights in the hope of unwrapping. There are the toys. Let's go to the next slide. This is um, on the left is the gift that I wanted when I was nine years old. These are the toys, whether for little boys and girls or big boys and girls, that cause a surge of adrenaline to course through our veins as we open them Christmas morning. Now, to the right, the gifts we need elicit a different reaction, don't they? At the top of my list for lame things to get at Christmas as a kid were clothes and books. Um... Both, as far as I was concerned, were basically just a waste of space under the tree that could have been reserved for cooler, better toys. And so my reaction when I received a gift that I needed, like socks or clothes or books, was pretty predictable. I would kind of, I knew I had to put on a persona. of like, oh, cool, tube socks, thanks. I was just thinking the other day, I really need some new tube socks, And then you kind of quickly toss it aside. You toss the book aside so you can keep digging for the actual good things. The first Christmas, we are given a gift. And Christians famously talk about the greatest gift being the gift of Jesus. But which of these gifts is Jesus like? Is he the, wow, this is amazing, I've been hoping and Losing sleep over uh, this gift. I'm super excited. Or is he a gift that our response to is, thanks, that's great. Um, And then we kind of place him aside and and dig for the good stuff. In verse 10 of Luke 2, the angel declares this to shepherds. It says, the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then in the verses that follow, we see how the news brought by the angel leads to a wave of excitement and rejoicing. Verse 15, moving forward. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. That's the reaction to the first Christmas announcement. You fast forward 2,000 years, here we are today, and that's not the reaction that at least culturally and socially we experience around Christmas. To state the obvious, we're not holding five or six Christmas Eve day services because the demand is so high to hear again this news of a newborn king. For many people in this community, the news of this gift is met with responses that range from that's nice, all the way to, meh. Why is the reaction in response to this Christmas message, that first one, why is the reaction from the first one so incongruous, so different, such a gap between then and now and our reaction? And I think it's this. I think it's because today we want God to give us a gift that we want, but instead he gave us a gift that we need. I want to explain what I mean by that. Uh, In 2005, there was a pretty interesting sociological survey done of 3,000 American youth. It was done by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, and they kind of uh, interviewed uh, high school youth in America and then extracted from that basic tenets of these students' religious worldview. And what they found in interviewing these young people um, was that there was a huge degree of overlap among five general themes. So they found that these students held a collection of beliefs that weren't necessarily particular to any one religious tradition. Rather, they were just kind of these convictions that were combined into their own kind of worldview. So the first was this, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That was the first thing that a lot of the youth said. Yeah, that's generally what I believe. The second one was this, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught by most of the world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life unless there's a problem to be solved. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. What the researchers did is they took these five tenets of kind of vague religious belief and formed it, uh, used a a three-word descriptor for this kind of generalized civic religion. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Those are all loaded terms, but they're actually not that complex. It was called moralism because central to this belief system is the conviction that God wants us to be nice, good, moral people, and he has advice on how to be moral and kind and nice to each other. And that if you live a moral life, God will love and bless you. If you live an immoral life, and if you're not a good person, God will not bless you, God may curse you, and good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. So it's a very karmic view of life. But at its heart is the idea that what God essentially wants from us is to be good and fair and nice to one another. So that's the moralistic part of it. The therapeutic part, they're using therapy to refer to comfort, um, being comforted. Because this system of belief provides an assurance that one of God's principal purposes is to make us happy and to help us feel good about ourselves. That's the point of God at work in our life, is to make sure we're happy and we're content and we feel satisfied. God's affirming to us. He's encouraging us. And deism refers to this idea that God created the world. He created a certain moral order. but He's not particularly involved in the day-to-day. He's kind of distant and off somewhere. But the good news is, if you want, you can call out to him if you're in a jam and he will come and help you. He will rescue you. He will act kind of like a a cosmic janitor. When you have a a spill on aisle eight, you can just say, whoa, I'm in over my head. Could you come clean this up? Great, thank you very much. And then God graciously doesn't impose his will on you. What he does is he says he leaves you to live life as you see fit. And so the picture that emerges from the sociological survey of high school students, but I think it's become fairly pervasive in terms of what many people Think of when they think of when you, if you were to ask them what would be core spiritual or religious tenets that you would have, this moralistic therapeutic deism leads to a kind of God who's a buddy, who's a cheerleader, someone who is going to affirm you, make you feel good about yourself, a kind of divine butler or a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, he's going to take care of any problems that arise. He's deeply motivated to help ensure that you feel good about yourself and that your dreams come true, but he's also not going to be too heavy-handed, and he's going to let you kind of—he's not going to be too personally involved in the process. He's going to give you a wide berth to be able to live life as you see fit. I don't know if we have the picture. Yeah, there we go. So that is kind of that, that, this would be kind of like the Christian version of it. It's it's buddy Christ. It's like you're awesome, you're awesome. I'm your friend. I'll help you out. Now, I thought about that distinction between gifts we want and gifts we need, and I thought about the results of this research, and I think what moralistic therapeutic deism is describing is the gift that we as humans would have wanted to receive from God. If there is a God, and God is going to step out of his transcendent otherness and come down, come low, get onto our level, look us in the eyes and say, I'm gonna show you who I am in the flesh so that it's unmistakable. I want you to know me. This kind of God is the God that culturally we could get excited about. That God sounds awesome. If that first Christmas would have been this announcement, maybe we would have five services here on Sunday. That there's a God who has come to give us good advice on how to be nice and good to one another. A God who's gonna work to accomplish our happiness. And a God who's gonna deliver us in times of trouble, but graciously allow us to order our lives as we see fit. He's gonna allow us to determine the scope and shape of our financial, sexual, vocational, recreational, familial, political, and educational affairs. We get the best of everything. We get a God who can fit in our pocket, who we can domesticate, and does our bidding. That, to an unredeemed heart, is a gift that we would want. But is that the gift that we are given at the first Christmas? It's not. At the first Christmas, humanity isn't given the gift that would come naturally to them. We're not given the gift that we want. Instead, we're told this by the angel. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This is a good news message for everybody. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Three really important words, titles for Jesus that should cause us to reflect on what is the nature of this gift. The first thing that the angel says is, in Jesus we are given the gift of a savior. And that implies that we need saving from something. But that idea that we need rescue, that we're that helpless, even at a spiritual level, makes a lot of modern people feel pretty uncomfortable. A lot of people don't really think that, do they? Like we need to be saved from something. A lot of people will concede that, yeah, I need advice. I need some instruction here and there. There are little uh, tweaks. And, I mean, there are certainly some people who are super messed up and maybe they need saving. But generally, a lot of people have it together and um, they just need some fine-tuning. They just need some redirection. They need some good advice to help them navigate life. They don't need saving. To modern ears, that sounds like an exaggeration at best or unreasonably offensive at worst. And I understand the suspicion regarding this idea that we need a savior to save us from something, which implies our helplessness and our deep need. Because if you, like a lot of modern people do, believe that the fundamental problem that lies at the root of everything is simply a lack of kind of moral education or or guidance, then moralism will make sense to you as a solution. If the solution to the issues that you think plague your life and the lives of the world is simply better advice, better advice sexually or politically or educationally or interpersonally, then conventional moralistic religion will very much appeal to you. But if you believe like I do, that the Bible teaches that the fundamental problem that lies at the actual root of all the other problems isn't simply bad instructions or not enough instruction, but sin, this term that's loaded, but it means this mysterious corruption that has poisoned and twisted every element of life to such a degree that we can't outstrategize, we can't strategize our way out of it We can't educate ourselves our way out of it. We can't willpower our way out of it. We need to be rescued from it. Then something deeper and more profound than simply good advice is gonna be necessary to help us. We're gonna need a new heart. We're gonna need some kind of cleansing. We're gonna need some kind of regeneration, a new birth. We're not just gonna need good advice. We're gonna need good news that someone can come and rescue us from this predicament, from these cycles of sin. We need to be given a new supernatural regeneration that longs to obey God and to live human life as he intended. We need saving from sin's penalty, which is alienation from God forever, and its power, which is a restrictive oppressive force that interferes with our ability here and now to love God love each other, step into the world with God's purpose and mission and to have a sense of peace and wholeness and integrity that comes from knowing who you are in God. Jesus wouldn't have needed to come if all we needed was a good example or more instruction. Israelites already had that. Moses and the law. If those things were sufficient, then just keep doubling down on conventional moralistic religion. Just keep going through it. Just keep trying harder and you'll get there. The law had its purpose, but it wasn't salvific. It wasn't to save us. It was to hold us and to direct us towards God, the source of our ultimate hope and deliverance. Jesus did not say that he came to seek and to teach the loss. He says, I came to seek and save. And we need a savior before we need anything else. Number two, we're told that the gift we're given in Jesus is the gift of a Christ. And Christ is a title, it's not Jesus' last name. It's a title, Jesus the Christ, and it means anointed one. Some translations will have Messiah in there as well. And it refers to someone who's specifically marked out to be a saving king. It's referred to in the Old Testament, looking ahead prophetically to someone who will come and act as a saving anointed king for those who place their trust in him and bend the knee to this king and give this king the, the allegiance of their lives. And we're told what to expect from this Jesus, the Christ, in John's gospel. John 1.14 says this, referring to Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the really short summation of the Christmas story. The pre-incarnate word of God became human, took on humanity, flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, I I think that language is really powerful because to a humanity that craves that if there is a God, that God would be unconditionally affirming, would be unconditionally committed to our personal happiness, who brings us, who lavishes uh, superficial materialistic gifts on us like Santa, a God who promises a spiritual safe space that is free from any kind of personal accountability, any kind of challenge. Instead, we're given a Christ who is full of grace and truth. And the encounter with that grace and truth is often not pleasant. Look at verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were happy. They were terrified. This is a really good um, point in the Christmas story to play out in your imagination. Because we don't picture what would have had to have happened such that the shepherd's reaction would have been terror. And the Greek word used for they were terrified is phobeo it's the word that we get phobia from it means a response um this response you get if you had arachnophobia fear of spiders and you're trying to avoid it at all costs it's not like whoa that's strange what's going on it's i want to get away from here i want to get as far away from this thing as possible right imagine this scene shepherds at night little campfire, got some grazing sheep, and all of a sudden, this light from heaven splits the sky and just threatens to just sear your retinas. And this voice just presses into your chest, and it feels like it's coming from all around you and within you, reverberating you from the inside out, and it's making you momentarily wonder, are you going to physically be able to hold together? And then the eyes of this angel with the full glory of heaven unveiled and this angel and all of its glory and all of its beauty is just staring you right in the eyes and it's telling you about this forthcoming gift. The reaction is terror. Which if you were reading this for the first time or hearing the story for the first time, the natural question would be, If the annunciation of this Christ's birth causes terror, what will his presence invoke when he actually reveals himself and shows up? This special chosen and anointed one comes to save. He is absolutely good, as C.S. Lewis said. He is full of grace, but he is not safe. He is full of truth. And he not only holds them in terms of his philosophy of life But he embodies the dynamic perfection of both. We have seen Jesus' glory full of grace and truth. And when he brings his truth, it will cut across many of the truths that we hold dear, and it's going to expose many of the truths that we hold dear as hollow and insufficient. And we learn pretty quickly in the Gospels that the point of Jesus is coming is not to serve our agenda for personal happiness. That is not why Jesus comes. He has something more meaningful for us. And he actually says, unless you take up your cross and die to those self-serving desires, you're not gonna be, a part, you're not gonna be able to be part of my project. My project necessitates it right from the get-go. You are, in a sense, declaring, my personal happiness does not come first. God's agenda comes first. The third thing that we're told is that the gift that we're given in Jesus is the gift of the Lord. That's a really loaded term. We don't use Lord and Lordships in our culture very much anymore, but the Greek word is Kyrios, which is translated Lord, and it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And Yahweh in the Old Testament is the divine name of God. And what this means is, is that Christmas is the announcement that Yahweh, the God beyond our imaginings and behind our longings, has sought us personally. Not just a messenger, but that would have been an angel, but God himself, Yahweh himself. Yahweh, the God whose power and glory we equally reveal and revile, have, has clothed themselves in humility and weakness for our sake. And Yahweh, the God whose judgment that we as a humanity suspect and brace for is bringing in its place hope and life and healing and joy, salvation. And with that pronouncement that this Savior and this Christ is also Lord, any hopes for a God that might play by our rules and preferences goes out the window into a world Wishing and hoping for the Christmas gift of a God who fits nicely in your pocket, a domesticated God a sub, who is subservient to our desires, who we can act as Lord over. God instead gives us Himself, the Lord, the source of power and wisdom and glory and hope, one who by His very nature demands our worship and allegiance, not just when it's convenient for us, not just when it works for us, not just at Christmas but year-round, not as an empty expression of religious tokenism, but out of recognition that life is about him. It's not about me. One who, when you see who he is, he compels you to bend the knee and say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but your will be done. So I'll ask you the question again. What do you want for Christmas? Because God has a gift on offer, but it won't be on offer forever. And so this Christmas, I would implore you to receive Jesus, to believe in his name, to embrace him as your personal Savior and Christ and Lord, and become a Christian. Because in doing so, you will be born again into a living hope that eclipses and supersedes whatever worldly ambitions and aspirations you have set your heart on. And who wouldn't want that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us the gift that we needed and not the one that we would have wanted. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of a Savior, and a Christ and a Lord. This Christmas, may you further reveal who you are to us so that we can respond to that gift in a way that is faithful and true. Thank you for this season, God. Help us to hear the proclamation and the truth of the angels in new ways. And it's in the mighty name of the Savior and Christ and Lord that we pray. Amen.